we're building a constellation, so many satellites that work together at the same time to map over 150 million square kilometers to the precision of several of centimeters scale accuracy. What is up, people? Today, I'm back with another episode of Brick by Brick. Today, we are joined by Clint Gorman, CEO of NewView, which is a satellite company, and his mission is to map the entire Earth to within a centimeter of precision. I'm a massive proponent for using technology to fix the world. The data that comes from his company will go a long way in solving the climate crisis. The other thing that I think is especially good about this podcast is if you are wondering what it looks like when you find your passion, this is it. So yeah, let's get into it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Brick by Brick. Today, I'm very grateful to be joined by Clint. How are you doing? Good, Ollie. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be on your show. Same. I'm very excited because you are one of those people who the ancient Greeks would have thought that you were a god because people used to try and go out on boats and map out the world. And I've, I, I was in researchers' podcast. I was looking at what the first maps looked like. And there used to be three countries splodged in the middle in a circle with water around it. And that was their, what they thought the world looks like. Can you explain why you would look like a god to those people? What does your company do? <laughs> There's no way I can even go in go into that one. <laughs> that, that's funny, <laughs> but 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 what I could do is is say you know tell you about the the mission that we have and what we're trying to achieve. I mean that that first map is at the granularity level of maybe a few rivers and and three countries crammed together and. What we're building at NewView is attempting to bring the entire surface of the earth, the land surface of the earth, over 150 million square kilometers to the precision of centimeter scale, not one centimeter, but several of centimeters scale accuracy. So I I can't say much for my looks, but for our mission, I think we've got a a godlike mission, maybe. I'm going to get crucified (laughs) for that statement, I'm sure. (laughs) No, that's insane. That is absolutely insane. So my first question straight away is, is there like, how does China feel about that? How do, is there any like, or North Korea, like, is there any like international privacy laws that they're going to come after you for? Um, there, there aren't any laws that are, are going to be able to challenge what we're, we're doing. I, I hope, um, so far we've not uncovered any, um, I have no idea, um, what those groups think about what we're doing, but we have you know, a tremendous um, drive toward commercial opportunities for climate tech, environmental, like these are all things where, you know, building a big business, you know, it it flows with doing good in the world. And so our primary mission really isn't about countries. It's about a global effort to combat climate change, provide data that's great for climate science. And and it is a bit nerdy too. I love maps. I just spent the last week at the Esri User Conference in San Diego, and it's twenty thousand people who just nerd out on maps, right? So it's it's one of the funnest things in the world. And um, you you kind of have to be a super nerd to love maps, but but I'm right there. That is insane. So what sort of use cases can you imagine or envis- envisage for your data? Oh, one of the really, I mean, for the for the listeners, you know, I think. One thing to understand is is what we're building at a grand scale to to understand the use cases a little bit, but we're building 
a constellation, so many satellites that work together um, at the same time to map really large scale, scale areas at um, extremely high precision. And we're doing it with LIDAR. Um, there are no other satellites that are commercially out there um, mapping with LIDAR. There are a couple of science instruments, but essentially we're working to build a map of the entire land surface of the earth, 150 plus million square kilometers at extreme detail. And that data is used by academics, by scientists, by commercial organizations, by governments um, to really understand the world in ways that aren't possible today with optical imagery or radar imagery. All of those have their, their place and they all have great use cases. And, and we love those two types of, of satellite data. But the types of things that you can do with extremely high accuracy and precision that you get with LIDAR, um, one of the, the hallmarks of LIDAR is that you can see through a canopy of trees um, when you've got the right intensity with the right um, amount of light that you can collect back. Um, and so imagine in the world of understanding how much carbon exists within a forest. If you're looking at it with optical or radar imagery, you're really looking at the canopy, like at large, this big canopy, and you have to do a lot of estimations. But with LIDAR, you can really measure what's there because you can see with laser point accuracy, the top of the tree, uh, which they call the crown, you can see the breadth of the tree um, to pretty high accuracy. And then the laser light will actually shoot between the leaves and go through the canopy and hit the ground. And so now you've got a measurement to the ground and the crown of the, uh, the tree. And you can see how tall it is. You can see how broad it is. Measure individual trees. And so now if you can measure all of the individual trees within a forest, you suddenly know length, width, and height. So you know volume of how much carbon is actually there. And so that's a really unique UK use case that comes with LIDAR. Yeah, that's insane. That's why when I came across your website first, I was kind of getting interested in space and I just started reading Payload, the space newsletter. Right. And I came across your site and I was just like, that mission is unreal. And I started thinking about what I would use it for. Have you, yeah. I saw you put a tweet out asking someone like for people's use cases. Did you get any oh, wow, good yeah. replies? Yeah. Um, you know, I think some of the replies that we get out there are pretty far-fetched and some of them are, are super practical. But I think the ones that really make magic happen are the far-fetched ideas, you know, because the really unique thing about the New View satellite constellation that we're building and having never been done before is that the scale of data available just hasn't been there. Um, typically, people have used airplanes to map, you know, maybe hundreds of square kilometers in a weekly period. But with our constellation, we'll be able to map millions of square kilometers in a week which that means, yeah, it's country level coverage in a really short amount of time. And so if we can produce that type of data, the type of things that I think our users are going to discover with it, um, I, I think it's going to be a complete change in what's possible. So the far-fetched ideas, um, we get ideas around bathymetry, which is the ability to measure through water up to like 20 or 30 meters deep. We're not actually building our constellation to do that, but that's a commercial decision. It's not that it's not a possibility, right? And so we get ideas around bathymetry and looking at structures underwater that are kind of near shore. Um, agriculture, I mean, imagine some of the ideas that we got around agriculture. We already had a lot of these ideas, but when you hear the users on the ground saying how they want to use it, it really opens things up. And 
you can understand erosion to a pretty exquisite detail. Um, but one of the things I'm excited about the possibility of one of the ideas around looking at um, areas that are crops. So think about um, corn uh, in the U.S. or, or maize um, and sugarcane. These are really tall crops, and the height of these crops are extremely correlated. So the amount of biomass within that crop is extremely correlated to how much yield there's going to be. Um, so how much um, crop yield or how much product is coming out of that field. And with the type of imagery that exists today, you can see the length and width of that field and what the health of the top of the canopy looks like. But what if you could see the height of that crop and you can see the breadth of the field and the length of the field? Suddenly, you know really well how much biomass is in that field. And if it's sugarcane, like, you know, a pretty good, accurate measure of how much sugarcane or sugar will be produced by that field. And the same with corn. And so these types of really exciting ideas that we've we've had these ideas, it's how we started the concept. But to hear the the really fine detail from the users on the ground is is really um, energizing. I think it's an incredible business because you're essentially just providing a new layer of knowledge to the human race. And it's a very, very thick layer of knowledge. It's not like a niche thing. It's, it's huge. And people will right. be able to build using your data and unlock new business models, solve more, more society's challenges. So it's really like an incredible business in that sense. Yeah, I think one of the most exciting use cases, it was actually really rudimentary and really... Um, foundational. We like to think of ourselves in most cases as a foundational data set. It's a data set that all other data sets build on top of. And um, I'd been talking to a potential investor that was excited about us. And he went away to a conference and he went, he actually went to a private island of a really well-known um, aerospace um, music entrepreneur. It wouldn't take long for the group to, to guess who that is, but <laughs> He met some people there and when he came back, he said, Clint, I met this lady and she's in charge of mapping in her country. It's a small country and the country had never had a national mapping initiative before. And one of the things I learned from her is that a solution like yours could mean the difference between whether people eat or they don't eat. And like that was so impactful on me, but it had really energized him. Um, and, you know, he said, look, I, I understand the value of this the person was also kind of an expert in that technology, but they said, you know, I'm in, like, I see it, I'm in. And I think what we've seen so far is when, you know, potential investors talk to the user community of our data, or they talk to customers, like it moves super fast, but the use cases are, are extremely impactful. More people need to hear this because there's, in my opinion, there's way too many companies that get set up and it's like a B2B software company. And it improves right. like an accounting workflow. And yeah, that's good to improve profitability a little bit for the companies, but I hope more people hear stories like this. Like, who imagines that you could eventually put a constellation of satellites in space and map the whole earth out? So I want to come to in a second to if you could break down like your sort of journey to, to, to doing that and what are the building blocks of that business. But before that, I just wanted to submit my idea of how the data could be used <laughs> excellent I, I think you should sell it to google and then if they could incorporate it into google maps in cities when i go for my walk at lunchtime i'd be able to see using your data and the position of the sun and the data on that 
I'd be able to see which streets are sunny or in shadows. I've, I've always thought I want that. And then you could go for a walk or a run and optimize the sun on your route. Or if you go to a cafe, you could say which cafe near me is sunny. Cause that changes a lot, especially in the UK. <laughs> so I'm yeah. going to put that into the universe. You know, um, just a, a funny anecdote. Um, I've been to the UK a lot in my life and I, I always get the same reaction that it's the strangest thing. I've never seen a cloudy day in the UK and I've been going to the UK for 15 years. It's like every time I go, the clouds part and it's just an amazing day. And so I've, I've yet to have that dreary kind of typical, um, you know, London, London, uh, dreary day, but I love going there. Uh, I've always had a great experience. <laughs> yeah. So I actually don't know what you're talking about. I've always seen wonderful days. <laughs> and the one day, like my family and I went there on vacation coming back from Germany and I got sick. And the one day I was sick in the hotel room and couldn't come out, it was rainy and cloudy the whole day. And then when oh, I went wow. out after that, it was sunny again. So I have nothing but great experiences is, is there. But can, um, can you do me a favor and move to the UK permanently? <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure about that one. Uh, I live in Florida, and it's and you can predict the sunny days here. <laughs> so, um, what sort of who have you raised money from? What sort of investors? Yeah, so so brick by brick, I you know the the title of your podcast and what are the building blocks of of where we we are. Um, our lead investor is Mac Venture Capital, um, based out of Los Angeles. The most amazing VC partners I could have ever asked for, and um. To be honest, I didn't have a great opinion of venture capital before starting NewView, but Mac has been the most amazing partner that I could have imagined. And you know, what one of the things so I, I love about raising money in this scenario where we had a really great yeah. What makes them so good is that people build networks of of people like them, you know, and the people that they've introduced us to, the venture capital groups have also been like them. But the second thing is like, I never imagined how much hustle a venture capital company could have. And those guys absolutely hustle. Um, some days I forget they're not on our sales team because they are out there. I probably talk to them two or three times a day sometimes, whether by text message or by phone and everyone's just working so hard to make sure what we're doing goes. Like I could absolutely re recommend them to any company raising money in kind of the early stages of their, their business. Um, but they introduced us to like Cortado, uh, ventures out of Oklahoma city and Cortado has been the same way. They hustle, they're huge supporters. Um, and they make you really feel like your family, not just a money source, right? They, they really pitch in lots of elbow grease and, and help you find better connections. Um, and then, you know, kind of the same thing. We got introduced to the Florida funders, um, based out of the Tampa area in Florida they were right in our backyard and we didn't know about them, but they're, I think they're the most active uh, uh, VC group in Florida and they're the same way. They've really brought us in and treated us like family. And I think, you know, the building blocks of our journey are that I feel like not because of the money, but because of the people behind the money that are helping us. I feel like we really struck gold um, in, in the venture backers. That's interesting because from what I've been researching, um, it seems like there's a lot of people saying in this day and age, you want to bootstrap. Obviously, in your sort of business, there's a lot of upstarts, so you probably need venture capital. But would you say, well, from what I'm hearing from you is it's definitely not, there's definitely not one or the other. You have to choose which one best suits you. And there are venture capital firms out there who do more than just give you money. 
Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's it's a funny story how we got there, but we did bootstrap. Um, I and um, my All co-founder, right. we own two other space companies together that we've we've pulled in. But we did bootstrap the company, um, hired our chief scientist um, out of our own pockets to to get things going. And he was the former chief of the Air Force Research Lab. But we really wanted to understand whether our concepts around the designs were were feasible. Um, and he was so crucial in, in helping us you know, get to a model that works. But the, it's a really funny story how we ended up um, our, with our first round of funding. We were doing this on our own, bootstrapping. And um, I also have a podcast. It's more for fun. Um, it's actually, you know, we've been you know, spending money on it and producing it for a long time. And it, it is really just a fun way to get to know other people in the space industry. But one of the guests we had on our show afterward, we were just talking after we'd already closed out the show. And, you know, she asked, you know, what all we do because we just really met through the show. And I was telling her about um, the businesses that we run. And I said, and I've got this idea that we're thinking about putting into motion uh, called New View. And New View is a constellation of LIDAR satellites. And we're creating the most accurate representation of the world ever created. And she said, you know, you should talk to Mac Venture Capital. Um, we work with Mike Palink over there. Um, meet him. And so she introduced me to him. And we really didn't have a, like, I don't even think we had a slide deck at the time. Um, we didn't have a memo. We just started with the conversation. And, you know, he really understood very quickly. Um, and they put in a ton of effort to understand the technology, a ton of effort to understand the problem, made phone calls to talk to the people that wanted to work with us and as customers. Um, and really, it took off from there. Um, but, you know, you can't underestimate, too, I've been in the business of earth observation for 15 years and really understood the problem and was able to articulate it to, to Mike over at Mac pretty well. And he's really just become and Mac ventures as well has also become really a, an evangelist for the organization. That's amazing. It's incredible to have good people around you like that. And yep. did I see correctly that Leonardo DiCaprio invested? He, he did. Yeah. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio did invest. Um, and, um, it's been a really great experience. Um, we, we didn't set out with the goal of, you know, getting celebrity investors. Uh, for us, it's always been important about having people that understand the mission and can help us further the mission. Um, and he does, you know, and I think it's been really great having him and his team on board. They've been super supportive. They also came to us, um, you know, through introduction from Mac Ventures, you know, and that's, that's the important thing is, having good people that connect you to good people. And um, Leo and his team uh, have been amazing. And, you know, we made an announcement where um, he invested in our company or actually he broke the news in, himself. But when we made the announcement, we wanted it to be very apparent that it's, it's not about having a celebrity investor. He's got a great platform and a great voice around climate science. And he's built up a really great group around him uh, around the world with NGOs and governments that really pay attention to his insights and ideas. And I can't imagine um, having a better celebrity investor than someone who's really articulate about climate science and who also believes very strongly in the climate science and the mission that we've put together. Interesting. So he's not just a face for like a, an, an investing group of his personal money. He actually, he's actually very active in the space. 
So yeah, he's he's been very engaged um, along the way and understanding our mission and making sure it's not just a place you send a check, um, but that you know he understands what we're doing is different. Um, and we're glad to have him as an investor, the VC funds that we have as an investor, and um, there there are others out there that are are super expert in their fields as well that have been supportive not just with a check, but with their mentorship. Um, and I've appreciated all of it and they've been great for the team. Mm. And I really want to get on to this, your, your, your passion sort of oozes out of you. It's very apparent how passionate you are. Like if someone can sit there and say, I just love maps, then you right. know that they're <laughs> a passionate person. But before that, what are the, the people who don't operate in the space industry, but maybe they would like to, can you give a sort of map of how it looks like? What sort of, jobs are there because i don't think many people understand the sort of mechanics of the space industry what sort of players are there what's the future of the space industry what's your lowdown as as an expert in space yeah um i think one of the really exciting things about new view is that you don't have to come from the space industry to work in the space business with new view like there's so many facets to our business um we're what you would call a partner first organization meaning we, we truly believe that the partners we have in the world, the resellers of our data, the um, analytics companies that create really amazing solutions from our data are the real key to our, our broad success and our longevity. And um, over the last 15 years, um, I and our team have built up a great set of relationships of, of almost 200 resale partners around the globe. Um, and each of them are either specifically expert in their geography or they're specifically expert in their vertical markets, like whether that's engineering or whether that's agriculture or forestry. And, you know, there's an entire marketing ecosystem around supporting our partners and the general public. So you could be an expert marketer and work in the space business with us. You could be someone that's incredibly good at human resources and help us build culture um, at New View. So, most of the jobs at NewView are probably not even, you know, space-specific jobs. There's this core kind of 20 to 30% that are heavy, hardcore engineering around the space business. But we've got so much room for geographers and experts in ag and experts in forestry that all help our partners make the most use of our data. So, you know, I think the passion around it, you know, really stems from you know, early part of my career, I worked with a company called RapidEye where we were based in Berlin. Um, I would argue pretty strongly we were the very first new space company. It was founded in 1998. We launched our satellites in 2008. Um, and eventually we were purchased by a company called Blackbridge out of Canada. And then that company was purchased by Planet Labs um, today. Um, and a lot of the programs we created eventually ended up in the Planet Labs portfolio of capabilities. And you know, I think one of the things that are most foundational about my passion for maps and the space industry and remote sensing and earth observation started with RapidEye. Um, we, we were in an old beer brewery where we built our office um, in Germany, and that was amazing in itself. And we had this really cohesive set of relationships of lots of people that didn't come from the space industry. We had 26 different nationalities. English was the common language, but different nationalities, different academic backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds. And that's really influenced how um, I'm working hard um, to build new view today and is, is super foundational. So lots of interesting ways to get in the space business without having come from the space business. 
most people would find it very normal now to work at a tech company like Google or Facebook or Apple. So I hope that that becomes more common with space as well. What do you think your, well, yeah, where did your passion in space come from, from working at one of the first companies? And where do you see the space industry going? No, the, the, the passion for the space industry um, and geography and mapping, um, I think I'm one of those lucky people that, that didn't come through a hardcore program because, you know, they always say if you, um, if, you, if you like sausage, don't go to the sausage factory to see how it's made. And, and I didn't come up that way. Like, I don't know if you can see behind me, but there are all kinds of National Geographic magazines and mapping or stuff. And, you know, as a kid, I can't remember the exact age I was, but I think it was like five years old. And I come from probably the smallest town you've ever seen in your life. Um, we had about 700 people in the entire town. We're about three hours from the nearest city in any direction, but we had an air force base and the, the space shuttle was coming in from California. Um, after this particular shuttle's maiden launch, um, is coming in, I think on the back of a 747, um, aircraft. And so it was coming in piggyback and, the news started spreading that the the space shuttle was coming to our little town, right? And so the entire town, it's almost like a, a, a movie where everyone shut off the lights and headed down to the Air Force Base and watched from behind the fence to see this, this space shuttle come in. And that was really something that, that took space from something I see on TV from public broadcasting back in those days to real life. And I was just taken aback and with the awe of it. And at the same time, my, my older brother, he's about 10 years older than me, but he, he had a subscription to National Geographic and our closet was full of National Geographic magazines. And so I was always sitting in the floor in the closet, reading these National Geographic magazines and, and dreaming one day about being an explorer with National Geographic. And those two things actually really melded in my, my personality and my interests. I actually took a left turn and was in the financial services industry for about a decade and then um, uh, I think the way all good stories start, I I'm, you know, met a girl and followed her to Germany. And there was this one company in Brandenburg in Germany that spoke English and the rest of them were German. Uh, there wasn't a lot of English speakers there, but it fit really well and it blended space and geography together. And it was the perfect combination for me personally to, to take my journey. And then the international aspect of everyone working there really solidified that it's the only thing I'm ever going to be able to do in my life because it's what I care about. What a story. That's unreal. I'm trying to um, like dissect it to make it like the fundamental principles of what you said so that other people can attach parts to them. Um, so did you, when did you look back and put all these pieces together? Because when you said that, that sounds like it was really obvious from when you were five. But the fact that you went into the financial services industry, was there a point when you were like reflecting and thinking, when I was five, I used to love this. And there was that moment where I saw the space shuttle. Maybe I should explore something in that avenue. Or did it just completely happen randomly? And it's just now in hindsight, you're connecting the dots. Yeah, it was just pure lightning strike. Um, because, you know, having spent the, the time in the financial services industry, I hated every second of it. Like the whole world was in a construct of, you know, 3% better than last year, kind of a, a mentality and approach. And the space industry, when I knew about it, were these huge legacy defense contractors that had been in space. And this company, Rapid Eye, like it was the first 
new space company. Like there was nothing else like it out there. And at the time though, it was kind of like the wild West, you know, you come from financial services, which is extremely highly regulated and the space industry is all about adventure and excitement. And I walk in the door with my nice, you know, financial services suit on and there's a guy like wearing cutoff jeans and no t-shirt like just bare chested laying in the grass reading books about remote sensing and it was like hippie university you know when i walked in there but it also had this german mentality of you know extremely well constructed process driven and it was a strange mix but it was exciting everyone is so passionate about remote sensing and um it really sucked me in and then, you know, one of, one of the things that I heard, though, is coming from financial services is that you can't be in this business because you come from financial services. And it was like most of the people within the organization were, you know, PhDs or had a master's degree in, in remote sensing or physics or something like that. And then I went out and they put me in charge of uh, basically head of business development and sales for the whole company for the whole globe. Right. And so no one else had run anything commercial for the most. Well, not no one, but most people hadn't. And it was a very academically inclined um, organization. And I made the biggest sale our company had ever made, like pretty fast within the company and, and put together a big deal. But the fact that you could do a deal like that and you just kind of create the deal, create the opportunity that you want to without having all these highly regulated organizations around it. You just do what the two parties want to do to create solutions. That was addicting for me. And we went out and we built this huge program in agriculture. And then we built big mapping programs and, and the ability to take it global and travel all over the world and work with different cultures. It just, it was like a lightning strike at first. And then it just sucked me in deeper and deeper. Do you think you had to do those 10 years in financial services? Or do you think if you're going to go back and do it again, would you spend a few evenings starting a podcast or researching other things that you could do? Or do you think it was just life is going to unfold and it will present you the opportunities when the time is right? Um, I think it's the latter, you know, or, or I think it's that, you know, when it, it's almost like the old saying in a lot of the, the storylines from, you know, from from movie making and storytelling that you know when when the student's ready the the master will appear and i think it was that way with this as well as that it took understanding a lot about the financial services industry and the intensity of it and to really you know blossom you know in the space industry in the geography world um and the timing was right and it all just kind of came together at the right time and you're right. It's easy to look back and see when you when you're building it over time, like it, it feels extremely challenging and hard and sometimes not that exciting, um, but but scary, you know, but it really has, I think, become foundational in who I am and who our founding team is. Um, I, th I think it took it all as a blend. Right. Um, it's easy to say. And I wish that I had gone back and, you know, had a different foundation sometimes. But I think it's made us who we are um, today. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that story. That's a really cool story. <laughs> Thank you. That's a really cool story. So after Rapid Eye, you moved to Canada with the acquisition or did you move to a different company? No, I, I, I you know, went through three companies through two acquisitions. Um, 
stayed kind of in a in a similar role throughout the entire time. And um, you know, you have all of these, you know, I guess events in your life that that really shape where you are. But you know, after the acquisition, the second acquisition, um, went to work for uh, a software company in agriculture. I was really driven there by remote sensing. It wasn't the right place for me, but again, it was hugely foundational in in who I am and what I learned. That deep understanding of agriculture and biomass and this entire ecosystem was was super important as well. Um, but I ultimately know I'm an entrepreneur, right? And I'm at my best when there's um, opportunity. And I think the one skill that I've developed over the years that I've finally been able to isolate you don't realize it's there at first, but it kind of makes itself apparent is that there aren't thousands of ideas that are unique, but I've been pretty good at spotting opportunities where others don't see them. And one of our investors said to us that, you know, Clint early on new view and LIDAR isn't obvious, you know, coming into competing against optical or radar and it's kind of easy to build those things these days. You, you throw up a small camera on a small satellite or, you know, the guys in SAR, Synthetic Aperture Radar, have even made that look easy um, at this point, even though I know it was hard to, to build those things. But LiDAR is something different. And it wasn't obvious at first, but I think it's going to be the consensus opportunity and spotting things that others don't see. Um, you know, the the agriculture program that we, that I started under RapidEye and then BlackBridge and then um, eventually is, is something that has, you know, grown into something at, at planet. I started that from the very first pixel and it's because I saw something in the market that was missing and it was mass adoption, mass availability of optical satellite imagery for the ag sector and grew it from the first pix pixel to, um, you know, worldwide program and the many millions of, of dollars. And I think when it comes to remote sensing and earth observation, I can see things coming and see market trends where in the financial services, it was just kind of work, but like I can see the mechanics almost like when you see, you remember the brand of, of watch called Swatch. It's a Swiss yeah. watch and you can see inside and see all the gears and moving parts. And I've always felt like for me, that's kind of how earth observation and remote sensing is. I can see the moving parts and see where, where we can do things differently. That's fascinating. So do you operate on gut, gut instincts a lot? Um, I operate on spotting opportunities with gut instinct, but I think I'm, I'm, I've been good at making sure I bring in like a deep expert. I mean, like with the idea about new view, like I, I instinct instinctually could know that there's an opportunity in global mapping with LIDAR. But before we went down the, the process, um, of, of taking other people's money, I've always tried to be extremely, um, uh, I guess, I've always tried to be extremely aware that when you're working with up other people's money, that you need to be very aware of the risks and the opportunities and transparent. And so before doing that, you know, hiring the the chief scientist that we have that, that came from a deep expertise of working with the air force, I think for 40 years, like is what we're proposing really viable. Let's dig in deeper and let's make sure it's, it's real. And why haven't people done this before? How do we do things differently? Um, and so I think instinctually I see things, but I've always tried to be good at validating that with deep experts that, that come from that specific domain. 
honestly that's the business i find the most interesting is there's i suppose you can think of it as the technology stack that we have access to as humans at the high level you can build a software product or make a webflow website on the low level you're making a silicon chip which allows billions of people to think of all sorts of ways of using it so how did you start your your tech is a low level tech where you've taken like you have a chief scientist, not a chief technology officer. So how do you how do you how do you start a company like that? How did you have the idea? And then what are the steps to then make it happen? Yeah, so we we really started out with chief science officer, but we kind of backed into additionally have a chief technology officer. And um the way that we think about those things is um I think you've got to have someone that's a little bit unreasonable on your team. And I think you've got to have someone that's very practical. And one of my, my former colleagues used to say, um, you know, his boss was go and he was, whoa. And I think you've got to have that push pull, um, to really achieve something amazing. And our chief scientist, he's the visionary, like he sees things in a much bigger picture. And, and, you know, he told me the way he likes to approach things is, Start with a science fiction approach. Imagine what you would love to happen in a science fiction scenario and then work backwards on what you have to do to get to that answer. Rather than thinking about what's practical today, let's be conservative, let's only you know do what we know how to do. Um, and so then you've also got your, in our case, your chief technology officer that's very practical and fundamental and day-to-day -day and operational. And you've got to have both of those. And I think Magic only happens when you've got go and you've got woe at the same time. Interesting. Yeah. You know how people say, I find it so interesting how sci-fi movies come true. And it's like, you can even impact the world positively by making an insane sci-fi movie. There's so mm -hmm. many ways of doing it. Are you a sci-fi fan? Are there any that oh, stand absolutely. out to you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of my buddies, um, was part of the CGI team on um, Starship Troopers. Like, and it's super cheesy, but it's also kind of, you know, cult level status film. But I grew up, uh, my first sci-fi movie, I'm dating myself a little bit, um, but it was in Wrath of Khan, Star Trek Episode Two, Wrath of Khan came out. And the most distinct sci-fi movie scene in my entire brain is when they pull this, like, bug out of a guy's ear in episode two that they'd put in there. It's wrath of Khan. And like, it was scary and it was gross and it was exciting all at the same time, these other worlds and these other people, but also the technology behind, you know, the enterprise and it really influenced me. And I saw that on, in the U S we had these things, um, drive in movie theaters where you drive in in your car and you watch the screen. That's I don't know. I'm, I'm probably exaggerating a hundred or, you know, 150 feet tall. It's amazing. And I saw this pull them pull this bug out of a guy's ear. That was basically the size of a car in real life. If you had it on that screen and it just impacted me so much. And then, you know, actually kind of around the same time I saw star Wars episode four on, you know, public access, not public access, but public television over the antenna. And like, it had this huge impact on how I saw that. And so all of the, you know, Star Trek Next Generation was was big for me. I watched all of the old Star Treks from the 60s and, um, you know, a lot of the conventional ones and then Alien and Aliens. So it's always been a big part of my life. Um, first, humans 
across the river in wherever the tribe was located. Then someone got bold and crossed the sea. Then they crossed an ocean. Then they started flying. Now we're going into space. Where do you see the human race in terms of the next few centuries in space? Well, in the timescale that you're talking about, if we're talking in, in centuries versus decades, like in centuries, um, and, and for what it's worth, my, my opinion doesn't matter much here. It's just you know exciting to think about. I think there'll be a one-way ticket to somewhere, right? A one-way trip. And that's going to be the ultimate. If you think about what we saw with Voyager and Voyager 2 that you know have gone interstellar and exited the solar system, that's kind of the ultimate mission is someone that's willing to raise their hand or a group of people willing to raise their hand and say, I'm willing to take the one-way trip on a you know, self-contained ecosystem within a spacecraft. And I know it's a one-way ticket, but what, what science and the human race can learn from me as I report back, like Voyagers was continued to report back. Like, I think that's it. That's, that's the exciting thing that science fiction for me is who's willing to raise their hand and take the one-way ticket. That is so wild. Can you imagine being on a spaceship, leaving the solar system on your own? Yeah, that's uh, and losing. May, yeah, I, I can't imagine it because there's no rescue mission at that point. You know, it's a one-way ticket. Yeah, that's insane. Now, how does the business model work for your company? Yeah, Some we're data, and then you build satellites. Yeah, um, I I 100% see us um, as a partner first organization, which I mentioned earlier in the, the podcast is that we know that partners are the key to our success. And you know, one of the things that, that I've seen, you know, really groups in this, this industry struggle with is there's always this temptation to build up this great business and go around the partner network that exists around the world directly to the end users and try to bypass all of the partners that, that know these areas really well, whether that's their local geography or whether it's a vertical market within an industry. And our business model is to create the most fundamental foundational data sets, really exquisite, clean data, um, make that data analytics ready, meaning we tune it to a format where we can deliver it out. That's great for, um, forestry, for example, or great for those that want to monitor coastline or that want to monitor the height of mountains. But we tune that data in an analytics-ready format and it's processed to that level. And this distribution network around the world takes that data and delivers it on with some value-added capability or derivative understanding of, of the data to solve problems in their industry. Our team can't be the best experts in the world, for example, at agriculture and then the best in the world at forestry and the best in the world at you know topographic mapping like to be the best you have to be on the ground with your boots in the mud really living that life and we want to be that partner you know i often say we don't want to change the world we want to provide the best data possible so that the world changers have what they need to change their own world in their own domain and so that's where i see us as our business model is we collect the data we, we, we aggregate that into the most exquisite data possible. We pass that on to the end users um, and then they monetize it. And we're, we're partners um, in this opportunity because 
climate change, environmental efforts. This isn't a, a fix it situation. This is a lifelong marathon that we, our children and grandchildren have to work together, that it's a journey. There's never a destination when it's over. Like it's a journey we have to work on together. It's a good point. And going back to imagining that the stack of technology, I feel like earlier stage technology and it's from when it was thought of to first happen and then people built on top of it. Earlier stage, I feel like it makes more sense to be a platform and I feel like computers were a platform to begin with. Right. And then now you have the iPhone, which is like a packaged up vertical version, I guess. So right. that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. We're absolutely a foundational data set. Um, but, you know, there's also some really great technology that we're building in into our constellation that allows, um, you know, beyond foundational, but, you know, to monitor precisely if we need to understand something um, to be able to, you know, stare at something for a long time and get a high fidelity image. Um, that's that's really key in understanding things to a very granular detail. So you can think about us as a system that's always on, always mapping. And when we get a customer order for something that um, is extremely important to them, we can drill down on that and, and give it really high fidelity. How much can you, how much of the satellites um, throughout the whole process from building the satellite, building the LiDAR tech, um, putting it all together, sending it to space, how much of that process do you lean upon third-party suppliers? Like, can you just buy a satellite and then pay someone to launch it? Or how much do you do yourself versus outsource? Yeah, I, th I think it's good to, for the, for the listeners of your podcast, to understand um, exactly what a satellite is, right? Um, so many people think that the satellite is the thing that they see, but there's so much more to it than that. They, they see a picture of a, of a satellite as an entire system, um, but there are multiple parts to that. And so the satellite bus is the outer structure. It's kind of the framework. If you were, if you were building a car, it's the outer framework and maybe the chassis underneath, but we're building the engine and the engine is the secret sauce. And so for me to tell you what percentage that would be hard to, to put a number on um, that's really coherent um, for the listeners, but we're building the engine, the part that does the thing that we do, which is really precise measurement of the earth. And so that part is called the payload. And we're extremely focused on the payload. We're extremely focused on the ground segment, um, which is, once the data is collected and comes down, how it's processed, how it's delivered. Um, so that part of the system, the secret sauce, the ground segment, and then everything that has become either commoditized or pretty common in the industry, we don't really see a need to build up a, an entire capability around that where you have to invest large sums of money for something that's already too common. And so we're going to partner with highly expert um, satellite bus providers um, that will, you know, build the outer structure, but we put the secret sauce inside. And our new facilities that we're building, we're in um, Lake Nona Town Center, which is kind of on the edge of Orlando near the airport. And it's this really high tech innovation hub um, of innovative companies. And um, we're building a 16,000 square foot headquarters in that area. It's got four different lab spaces, which are clean rooms and integration. And so, you know, we're, we're trying to focus heavy on, heavily on what makes us different, not focus on the things that make us the same. Awesome. I think when I was younger, I used to think you'd hear stories of Elon Musk. And I thought that, you know, he's an engineer 
And I thought he'd designed the whole car and built the whole thing himself. I think right. as you get older, you realize you find your, I suppose you're saying you find the differentiating thing that you're going to make the best in the world. Right. And then you might buy chassis from Ford or like the air conditioning unit from somewhere else and you piece it all together and that's how you make your product. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. And, um, it, it all works only because of great partners and, you know, that philosophy, if someone wants to know who I am as an individual and who and how that really comes into the culture of our company, it's that I'm a hundred percent believer that a rising tide lifts all boats. And if you've got partners that can grow with you and you can learn from them, like we all get better together. And so whether that partner is a venture capital firm or whether it's a satellite bus builder or provider, or whether it's, um, you know, a, a company that receives the data on the ground um, in, in a European country and then helps the European space agency with their mission, like all of that, it's about partnerships. And so, um, I, I'm a big believer that we're all stronger together and we solve bigger problems when we work together than if we try to do it all ourselves. I think that's a very admirable way to think. I wish more people did think like that. I think of it as the first time this really dawned on me, it was actually weirdly enough, Kanye West speaking on Joe Rogan's podcast. And he made a good wow. point that we're all on this one rock in space. And the idea that we'd like compete and not share things is just ridiculous when you think about it like that. We have to work together and not be greedy. And yeah, the more you do, the more there's people like you, the more we're going to have incredible things and better lives and a better planet. So yeah, I appreciate these things like that. Yeah, thank you. I, I'm I'm a believer that if we if we work together and we do good together, the things that you do will the great business will follow, right? And um, do good first, and the money will follow. This is now a more selfish question. Um, I agree with you on the mission, and I love it, and I. I'm actually an engineer by trade. I did engineering at uni, but I'm, it's not my natural skill set or passion. Whereas I love um, communicating with people, speaking to people, getting messages out there. So the business I'm trying to build at the moment is a sort of growth agency for really technical founders who may be more focused on the science side. And then I'm going to try and find out how to get that message to as many people as possible. Can I selfishly ask you, because you must know a lot of people in the space. Do you think that's a, a good idea? Do you think there's a market for that? Oh, 100%. Um, the, the company that, that we built before NewView um, is a company built on that same premise. It was around helping companies that were founded by engineers understand the market around what they're building and then help them build that into money and revenue. And so we started out with the premise of, these guys are super smart. They've got great ideas for sensors. Um, now, how are they going to monetize that? And they often understand really well how to make an exquisite sensor, but they don't know how to, you know, how the market in Asia works for whatever they're producing. And they don't understand how the market in Australia works. Um, and so I think it's a great idea to be able to take something to technical founders and translate that in a non-technical way to the world um, and help them understand the market. I think we need more of that. And, you know, you see that a lot with 
companies that are, you know, come through accelerators, um, they've often got a technical founder and a non-technical founder. And in those cases where you don't have that second piece, it's great to have someone that knows how to, to translate for them what the world's looking for. And it's about partnerships again. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're building that business, did you, how did you find people like that to work with? And then how did you execute and deliver that? Because that sounds very intense, how the market in Asia works. Oh, yeah, so it was. Um, well, see, I mean, I, I'd been, you know, the um, head of, you know, business development, sales and everything for the entire company for RapidEye. And then at Blackbridge, I had a pretty broad market as well. And you, it's not a huge industry in earth observation. Well, it's a big financial industry, but it's a small community is probably the better way to put it. And, you know, I'd been building this network of almost 200 partners um, forever, right? And so I knew how to help earth observation companies break that market open. Um, and if and if there were companies that wanted to take their U.S. company international, I was pretty good at, at that. And if there were international companies that wanted to come to the U.S., we were pretty good at that as well. And so it was kind of this bi-directional push-pull um, effort. And I think the network um, and the trust that I'd built with that network over, over a decade at the time uh, was an extremely valuable. Um, and I think being respectful of... Um, their market not going around them, but helping them build their market was good for the value adders in those markets or the end users and the commercial organizations as well. Reading between the lines, it sounds like kind of throughout your whole career, you didn't ever make a grand plan and then say, right, I'm going to go and do this. You sort of played the board that was in front of you. Until Nuvio. Like new view hit me like a bolt of lightning. Um, but it's because everything else I had done suddenly came together. Um, and, and this probably should have been something we discussed at the very beginning of the show, but it was in the first couple of weeks of the pandemic, you know, we'd always built in the company we, we had Terrametric. It was a, um, it was always a, a remote first effort and we'd been working remotely for years. And then when the pandemic hit, um, none of our customers knew how to work remotely very well. And so we had about two weeks where everyone was kind of, you know, paralyzed and didn't know what to do. And it was the first time in 15, well, at that time, yeah, 15 years that I didn't have to think about something or execute on that day. It was a time to just think. And I was literally sitting in the hammock in my backyard between two palm trees, just kind of swimming, swinging in the sunshine in March. And all at once, all of the conversations that that were meaningful to the subject matter about LIDAR and precision and accuracy, it all came together at one time and I couldn't help myself. And I jumped out of the hammock. I wrote the business plan for NewView in about 30 minutes and it's the, the bones of the business plan and then fleshed it out. But that one truly started out with a grand plan, not just, not just a sliver of an idea, but the whole plan came out at once. And then that really set us in motion into hiring our chief science officer and, you know, step after step on that, the building blocks, you know, the very name of your podcast, it was block by block, but the idea, the grand plan came at once all within about 30 minutes. Interesting. Like on the scale of in that, for this project that you're building, it all came at once, but it wasn't like when you were 12, you said, I'm going to build a satellite. Company. No, no, not at all. 
No, when I was 12, I wanted to be an astronaut. And when I was 15, I was too tall. So, um, so by that point, um, I had changed my trajectory, um, decided on basketball and, you know, went into business and, and financial services and all of that, but I was never too tall for, for financial services, but, um, the growth spurt between, you know, age, um, 14 and 15 pretty much put most of the, the astronaut, um, plans out of out of category for me and i i don't know why i gave up on going to work for national geographic i guess i just never knew coming from a small town what possibilities were real for me at the time have you spoken to them recently like do you reckon no if they're listening i would love to have yeah. that conversation i reckon there's a there's a front cover shot that needs to go up there <laughs> so what i think there's a big problem these days with Lots of people, I'm sure, throughout history have been ambitious and wanted to make something, build something incredible of their life. But at this point in time, there's so much um, content on social media of people flying around in jets and making loads of money. And it almost adds a rushed element to your life because you see what's possible and you see other people who are also young who have already made it. And I think it instead of you following your passion and where your sort of heart shows you to go, the, the money aspect gets blown up way out of proportion. And I, I've definitely felt this and I see it around me all the time and people start following the money rather than their passion, which doesn't have money at the start, but it will have money in the future. Right. What do you think of that? What do you think people should do at the start of their, say in their twenties? What, what should you be optimizing for? Oh, I've got a very, very, um, firm opinion on that one. Um, I spent the first 10 years of my life chasing something that I didn't love because there was money at the other end of the, the pathway. Right. And when I decided to do what I wanted to do, irrespective of the money. And I actually, when I got into the space industry, leaving the financial services industry, I took a five X pay cut to do it. Like it was a big pay cut. And I was never happier. Like I was doing exactly what I wanted to do. And my advice, which um, like without consequence to, you know, to how it ended up one way or the other, I was doing what I loved, which was space and geography. And I never regretted it for a second. And my advice would be, don't lie to yourself about what you want to do. Don't tell yourself you love financial services because you think there's money in it for you. Don't tell yourself that you love, you know, manufacturing automobiles as an engineer, if you really want to build spacecraft, like whatever it is you want to do, do that. And when you're passionate about something, like it doesn't feel like work, you enjoy it and the money will follow. Yeah, that's really cool. And in the meantime, you, you might have to take a few strategic like jobs where you're not on your and align with your passion. But I think more people should definitely pay more attention to that and try and optimize for it. Yeah. And I guess the second piece of that too is never accept what the world offers you as your path, like cut your own path, decide what you want to do. And just because someone tells you that these are the opportunities open to you. I mean, like if I had followed that, I would have either been a, a, a teacher or a farmer growing up in my small town. Right. And that's a good job for the people it's a good career for the people that want to farm. And like the people that want to farm, they want to farm. Like they're doing exactly what they want to do and they don't care. 
And that's the way I feel about what I do. And so my advice there was, you know, if the world tells you, you can't be an astronaut because of your height, I wish I hadn't listened to that. Right. I wish I had pursued it anyway. Um, because you never know when commercial space flight comes around and you get tall people going up with SpaceX or Blue Origin. Like I couldn't have seen that coming at the time. I wish I'd followed that. So cut your own path and don't listen to people or the world when it says these are the paths available for you. I love that. And yeah, I completely agree. I'm going to follow that advice. <laughs> um, what is there anything you had to change about yourself leaving financial services? to become the sort of person to be successful in, in following your passion? Like, is there anything you've worked on to become more disciplined or cutting out drinking or anything like that? <laughs> well, um, that's a really hard question because I think the changes that come with pursuing your passion would mean that you sat down and strategically thought about what you needed to change about yourself. I'd say the evolution of myself came from, like the whole process. Like, I don't think there's a single thing that I chose to do. Um, I, but I do think the single best thing, best advice I ever received and I followed as an entrepreneur, um, you know, I think our investors, you know, at one point told us like, if you need to join a gym um, to stay fit, you're going to be a better leader. You're going to have more energy. You're going to do everything better if you stay fit. Um, you know, and if there's a health benefit involved, you know, at the company level to pay for that. And, and we don't do that, but like, but just do it because your personal fitness is the way you pay yourself first. You invest in your future by making sure that you're there to see the company through the hard times. You've got the energy, you've got the stamina, um, you've got the extra stamina after work to spend with your family, your kids, your, your loved ones. And I think that was probably the one meaningful personal change was I got great advice to invest in myself in that part of my life. What sort of stuff do you do? I'm a swimmer. Like I'm not a trained swimmer. Um, I learned how to swim watching YouTube. Um, and I don't mean like how to keep my head above water, but to actually swim as a, as a training method from watching YouTube and learning strokes from that. Um, I swim every day. Um, I, I try to do strength training as well, but, but swimming is the place where I can put my head under the water. I don't hear anyone talking. I don't have to make any decisions. I get to just focus on kind of your Zen, you know, it's quiet under the water. It's a great place to just, you know, be inside your own mind. Um, and it lasts a while. Like, you know, you swim for an hour, hour and a half, and it's just quiet the whole time. And it's a good total body workout. I am terrible at swimming. Did you start <laughs> I was off too. bad? Okay. How, what, which YouTube video? What's the, what, what changed it? I can't breathe. I, I, I think <laughs> Well, well, none of us yet can breathe underwater. Uh, maybe we'll get there, but, <laughs> but the breathing part, like, you know, it's all, it's all learning one thing at a time. And the way I started out was just jumping in the water and seeing how far I could get like before I threw up. Right. It was, <laughs> it was hard. Um, it's the most difficult training that I think you can do, but once you do it, it's the easiest training that you can do. Um, so first I just, I tried to focus on how do I keep my head underwater? And the first obvious choice wasn't obvious to me. It's like, get some goggles. So you're not swimming with your eyes open. So I got some goggles and then, you know, how do I breathe? And then, you know, I, I learned to breathe, but, um, eventually, you know, I've kind of resorted to, you know, getting YouTube to look at swimming strokes. And today I'm just going to improve this one thing about my stroke. So I don't, 
you know, pull my rotator cuff out of, out of position or tear it or something like that. And then I work on the kick and I work on each component. And I think it's the same. It's got a high correlation to what you do. And as an entrepreneur, you, you don't just start the business and everything works. One day you focus on sales. Like you've got to sell your idea and you get good at that. And then the next thing you work on, I'm, I'm skipping some steps here, but you work on engineering and you work on marketing and it's one piece at a time. And eventually you become, I'm not going to say you're, you know, the world's expert, but you come a, become a comprehensive um, expert on your business and you know all these different components of it. So if you're going to swim, if you're going to lift free weights, if you're going to run, I think it's every day make a little bit of improvement um, on yourself one piece at a time. And there's this great, there's this great statue um, that I've seen and it's a picture of a square block um, and inside of that block, there's an arm reaching out with a chisel and there's an arm reaching out with a hammer and you can't see any other part of the person. And it's essentially chiseling yourself and your opportunity out of this block of, of, of stone that's got no real shape to it already. And I think your business is that way. Your personal life is that way. It's one piece at a time, um, block by block. <laughs> brick by brick. Brick by brick. Yeah. No. Sorry. <laughs> Brick by brick. Yep. <laughs> That's my favorite quote. Michelangelo Good. said it's everyone starts with a block of stone and it's the job of the sculptor to uncover the statue within. Yep. And that's, that's the way I look at life. Like you, you need to, that's, that's essentially our jobs to work out what it is that is the core of you. And it's right. interesting. Yesterday I was speaking to a lady who in lockdown started running and she just loved it. Like she just got obsessed with it. And now four years on, she got selected to run at the Copenhagen Marathon for England. Wow. Well, for, for great, great Britain. And she was saying, she just, similarly to you swimming, she just started running, was terrible, but just loved it. So just tried again. And then she changed one tiny thing and then she got a new pair of shoes and then maxed that out. And then she changed another thing. Then she started doing different types of training. Then she met a coach and all these things happened naturally. And now that you're saying that about swimming, about your business, it makes me think a good test for whether or not something is driven by passion or by the wrong thing is, are you turning up to do it every day as an amateur and still loving it? Or are you starting running to look cool and then you buy the best shoes, the best glasses, the best hat before you've even ever run a mile in the does that make sense? Does that? Yeah, I, I, you know, strong correlation. I, um, I've been swimming for for quite a while now, and no one would ever pay me to swim or ask me to join their their team. But I think you know this this last um, a few months ago, my wife um, got something for me and the kids for Father's Day. But it's one of those gifts that Dad kind of picks for himself, right? And I picked these swimming goggles from the Magic Five. Um, and they're swimming goggles that are totally catered to your body. You use your phone, you do a 3D image of your face, and then they mold them to fit the contours of your face. Best wow. swimming goggles I've ever had in my life. And it literally has made me love swimming even more because it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an experience where you don't even feel the goggles on your face. They just feel like part of you. And I think that's the pinnacle of your business. It's the pinnacle of what you do to improve yourself. When you get to that level, you've done it for love. You've done it for fun. And then you're investing in yourself in that way. I, I think you're exactly right. Can I ask before we draw to a close, 
Is your wife the same lady that you went to Germany for? It is. Yeah. Um, same lady. Um, and that's, you know, that's how this story started. We, well, I'm actually spinning this into a much longer story. We met in high school. Um, she was an exchange student from Germany. Um, and, and I can't even say my hometown, like the school I went to didn't even have a town. It was a school between four cow pastures, right? And in the, <laughs> in baseball, if you hit the ball into the cow pasture, it's a home run. Like it's that, <laughs> that small of a place. And, and we met there and we didn't see each other for, for many years. And then we, we kind of got reconnected as the internet became more prevalent. We met through this, um, you know, website, uh, I think classmates.com or something and said, Hey, are you the same Clint Grumman I went to school with way back in the day as an exchange student? I said, yeah. And then, so we ended up, um, back together, followed her to Germany, got into the space business. Um, and then here we are today with, with, uh, a podcast, um, and two space businesses. And like, it's, it's a long story, but it's a good one, I guess. That's insane. What made her so special and does is it true that the right woman will add and multiply your life? Oh, absolutely. I think the thing, um, uh, German women are, she's German, uh, German women are special because they tell you they're special. Uh, like they're <laughs> so, no, but I, I love the fact that when you found a business with someone that close to you, you always, you have this level of trust you don't have with a co-founder that you might meet at, Y Combinator or something like that, or someone that, that you're kind of put together, that level of trust that you can be off minding this part of the business and you know this other part of the business is going to be well taken care of because you have the same aligned interests. And you hear lots of stories about not working with your spouse and how challenging it is. But, you know, I think we're both so passionate about the same thing um, that it just works really well. Um, and I think, you know, a uh, a bad relationship will lead to a bad business, but a good relationship can lead to an amazing business. Amazing. Love that. Well, Clint, this has been an amazing conversation and you really are an inspiration. I have other people take inspiration from it because oh, you definitely open my eyes. And then, well, I mean, I think from seeing the website of a company I've not heard of before to then speaking to you and seeing how your mind works, the two things, it now all makes sense how they could be such an amazing company because you've done, you've got an amazing outlook. And yeah, I feel like I've learned a lot. So thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for having me. Um, I, I look forward to seeing you on your journey as well. But thank you for having me on the show.